Hello, I'm John Horning, and this is Shaking Scripture's Leaves, a podcast where we think through Scripture, one passage, one topic at a time, until we have shaken all of its leaves. Now, last week, I did not end up posting a podcast episode, and that's because this week, I'm going to be starting a series going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've had the opportunity to teach through the book of Ecclesiastes on a couple of previous occasions, one of which is on this podcast. But I'm going to be taking some time to go through just chapter by chapter, essentially, the entire book. Right now, I'm in a class on Ecclesiastes, and so I've been spending a lot of time working through this material specifically. And so while it's fresh in my mind, it's probably a good time to just kind of go through the entire book. Uh, And then since Ecclesiastes is a particular interest to me, I'm very likely going to end up coming back and hitting some more of the topical issues in Ecclesiastes. But this series is just going to be an opportunity to go verse by verse through the entire book and essentially do a commentary on the entire thing. So I'm hoping this is helpful. I'm actually very excited to go through this. And so we're just going to dive in. Uh, One note that I should add, though, as I'm discussing Ecclesiastes, all of the verses that I provide from Ecclesiastes, all of these are my own translation. And then as I cite verses from other portions of the Bible, I'm mainly using the ESV. But these are my own translation of Ecclesiastes chapter one, so take that how you will. But Starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're introduced to the speaker, we're introduced to the preacher, we're introduced to the author of the book. And it says in verse 1, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so one of the first things that we need to discuss as we read through this book is who wrote Ecclesiastes. Now that word preacher, uh, that essentially means one who gathers. And it's based on the verb to gather. And so it carries with it this idea of gathering people together for the purpose of having a, you could call it a sermon. So it'd be like if you called a pastor a churchman, which I don't know how many of you are familiar with that terminology, but it's very similar to that. It's one who assembles people together for the purpose of delivering a message. And so that's why we call it preacher. But the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, there's an extra piece of information that's added to this in verse 12, where he doesn't just say that he's the king, but he says that he's the king of Israel. So when we discuss people who are the king of Israel in Jerusalem, a son of David, that narrows it down to only one person. The only person who was a son of David, who was king over Israel in Jerusalem, is Solomon. Because while Saul was king over Israel, he was not a son of David, and he was not king in Jerusalem. And while David was king over all Israel in Jerusalem, David was not a son of David. And then Solomon was the son of David, king over the entirety of Israel in Jerusalem. But then, starting with Solomon's son, King Rehoboam, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, the kingdom is divided. You have the northern tribes of Israel, which henceforth are called Israel, And then you have the southern tribes of Judah, which are called Judah. And that's the nation. So that's the, so Judah is ruled by the sons of David, whereas the northern tribes of Israel are ruled by various other dynasties. So Solomon is the only person who can actually take this title for himself. And even people who 
deny Solomonic authorship, a lot of them will still acknowledge the fact that the author of Ecclesiastes is identifying himself as Solomon. And then even in verse 16, uh, Solomon says that he is wiser and grew in wisdom beyond all who were before him in Jerusalem. And again, the only person who can make that claim is King Solomon. Because in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 11 to 12, you have in 1 Kings chapter 3, that whole story where God comes to Solomon in a dream and he says, hey, you get one wish, ask me what you want. And then Solomon says, you know, give me a wise and discerning heart that I may govern this great people of yours. And in chapter 3, verse 11 to 12, God responds to Solomon and he says, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So Solomon is the wisest person who has ever lived. And some people are like, they have beef with Solomon saying, oh, I was wiser than all who came before me in Jerusalem. And they're like, the only people that came before him in Jerusalem was David. But David's not the only king that reigned in Jerusalem. David conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And there are some notable people in the Bible that are noted as reigning in Jerusalem, specifically King Melchizedek. King Melchizedek was a character in Genesis who ruled over Salem, which is Jerusalem. And so even though David is the only Davidic king in Jerusalem before Solomon, there are other kings. But even if it's a bit of an odd way for Solomon to describe himself as being wiser than all who came before him in Jerusalem, one thing that is certainly the case is that there is no one who can honestly make the claim after Solomon that they are the wisest person who has ever been over Jerusalem. There is no one who can honestly make that claim because everyone who comes after Solomon is fully aware that Solomon existed and is fully aware of the wisdom of Solomon. So Solomon is the wisest person who has ever lived, which means that he is the only person, he is the only son of David who can actually make that claim. So the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. And I mean, if you don't believe that the Bible is inspired, then you might have beef with that. But I'm assuming that the people that are listening to this acknowledge the inspiration of scripture. And so if Ecclesiastes is inspired scripture, the author is claiming to be Ecclesi is, uh, is it claiming to be Solomon. So we're just going to, we're going to accept that as reality. We're going to accept the fact that Solomon is in fact the author of Ecclesiastes. Now, one of the reasons that that's helpful is that we have some context about Solomon's life. We know that Solomon was extraordinarily prosperous. We know that Solomon was extraordinarily famous. We know that Solomon was extraordinarily wise. And we also know that as Solomon grew older, um, some problems occurred. Among other things, Solomon started amassing wealth. He started marrying a, like a ton of women. Uh, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines, and they turned his heart away. And so towards the end of Solomon's reign, he starts building high places and idols for all of his various foreign wives. And even as a result of Solomon's idolatry, that ends up being the reason that God divides the kingdom, where God comes to Solomon and he says like, hey, because you've done all this and because you've been so incredibly wicked, I'm not going to take the kingdom out of your hands for the sake of David, your father, but 
I'm going to divide the kingdom out of your son's hands because of the extraordinary wickedness that is defining this latter half of your reign. So Solomon, he tanks, man. But Ecclesiastes is written at the end of Solomon's life, where after having done all of this wickedness and having pursued pleasure in life through wives, wealth, and other means, what does the wisest person who has ever lived have to say about life as he reflects on his own wasted life? And so that's an extraordinarily helpful conversation to have. And so we identify that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, and this book is a discussion of his own life lessons, you could say, looking back on his own life. And so in verse 2 of chapter 1, we see Solomon begin his thesis statement. This is essentially a summary statement of the entire discussion that occurs in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's this. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher, vapor of vapors, all is vapor. Now, some of you might be noticing that that is not the translation that you are used to hearing. Most translations are going to say vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so we do need to take some time to discuss the meaning of that word, vanity. Now, in Hebrew, that word is the word for vapor or breath. So the literal meaning of the word is vapor or breath. And it's used in a few different ways throughout the Old Testament. So it can be used to describe something that's passing, as in it's short-lived, you know, like your breath might appear in a cold day and then disappear shortly thereafter. Vapor holds that meaning. And so it's used to describe things that are short-lived. And it's also used to describe something that's empty, where in the same way that vapor is kind of worthless and it's empty, it doesn't have any weight to it. Well, that word is used to describe things with that characteristic. So for example, this is often used to describe idols. And an example of that is in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, it said, where God says, they have made me jealous with the things that are no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. And that word idols, that's this word. That's this word for vapor. And a literal translation would be, they have provoked me to anger with their vaporous things. And so the reason that this word is often used to describe idols is because where God, the real God, is real and eternal, idols are empty and passing. Where idols pass away, they didn't exist forever, they had to be made by someone, and they won't continue to exist forever, they're going to pass away with the people who worship them, and ultimately at the end of time, even if like some physical idol has survived for however long, when this world comes down, it's not going to last forever. So in contrast to God's reality and eternality, idols are empty and passing. And so this word is used to describe them. And you can see that that's actually a direct derivation of its literal meaning, which is vapor. Additionally, it can be used to say something is empty and worthless. Like in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7, it says, Egypt's help is worthless. And that's this word. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. And so if I were to say that literally, I would say Egypt's help is vapor and emptiness. I'm saying that Egypt's help has no weight. It's like a vapor. It's worthless. And so every single use of this word in the Bible is a direct derivation of that word vapor, of its meaning vapor. And the difficulty with the word vanity 
is that at one time, that is the meaning that vanity had. Like, for example, if you think of Proverbs 31, where it says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, that's this word, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Well, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Beauty passes away. Beauty is a vapor. You might be beautiful today, but you age, right? So it's a direct derivation of that word. But because of the way that that word is used in our modern day, when we say vain, we don't mean passing and empty. When we say vain, we mean superficial. We mean that something is skin deep. And so the English meaning of the word vain has actually moved a little bit over the course of time. And so that word vain is no longer a good translation of this word for vapor. So, you know, even though it's kind of the accepted translation, I really don't think modern translations should be translating this word as vain because vain means something different now than it used to. It's no longer an accurate translation. So we just need to start with that. Every single time Ecclesiastes, when you see that word vain in Ecclesiastes, swap it out for the word vapor, where Solomon is making a twofold claim by calling everything vapor. It's calling everything, one, passing, short-lived, brief, and two, it's saying that everything is worthless and empty. It's drawing on both of those meanings of the word vapor. And you can actually see this just by checking the argument that's being made in Ecclesiastes. Anyone who's read Ecclesiastes knows that death is a central theme in Ecclesiastes. It's got a heavy theme of death, and so in light of death, it makes sense that Solomon's conclusion would be, everything is vanity, or I should say everything is a vapor. Life is short. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, this is one example of that, it says, Surely there is no memory of the wise along with the foolish in the future. In the days which have already passed, everything has been forgotten. How the wise dies along with the fool. So I hated life because evil was upon me. The works which have been done under the sun are all vapor and striving after wind. They're all short-lived, right? In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, Solomon says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because this is the end of all men, and the living takes it to heart. Where there's a theme in Ecclesiastes that if you are going to live life well, you need to live life in with the perspective of death. And James actually picks up this exact same theme. There's a couple places in James that seem to be pretty clear allusions to the book of Ecclesiastes, references to the book of Ecclesiastes. And in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, that's one of them. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James picks up this exact same theme, and I'm going to say he's referencing Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes, again, has massive themes of labor and effort and work and how they relate to the brevity of life. So the reason that I tell you all of this is because, one, our translation of it's vain, it's kind of difficult for us to really know what that means. Like, it's kind of a nonsense word in this context because its meaning has changed over time. So I instead want you to see that and know, okay, Solomon is saying that life is a vapor. Additionally, there are some people, uh, for example, a guy named Dr. William Barrick 
has a commentary on Ecclesiastes, which I would recommend. It was recommended to me by my Hebrew professor, and it is a good it is a good commentary. But he puts forth that you should translate this word as enigma, to just say that you know life is confusing. There's things in life that don't make sense, and so I reject that translation uh, for the simple reason that it's not what the word means. Solomon could have said that life was confusing. He didn't. He said that life is a vapor. So the word means vapor, and it makes complete sense in the context of Solomon's discussion that he'd be referring to life as a vapor. And so I have no reason to change the text and make it confusing or enigma instead of vapor. Because over the course of the entire Old Testament, like I said, every single use of this word is a direct derivation of its literal meaning, vapor. So this would be the only time in the entire Bible that the word means enigma. And there's really no reason to take that as the meaning. You know, that's not translation, that's emendation. You're not translating the word, you're changing the word's meaning. So just to put that out there, that if you study the book of Ecclesiastes, you probably will come across that. But really, there's no basis for it, at least no basis that I find compelling. So life is vapor. So Ecclesiastes is discussing life and the contents thereof as a vapor so that we can think properly in light of our death. So that's the overall claim. And in verse three, we're going to continue because Solomon says, what is given to a man with all his labor, which he labors under the sun. And so that phrase under the sun, that's again going to come up a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes, which I'm sorry, this is kind of, you know, massively an introductory statement, but these are things that are going to become important as we move forward in Ecclesiastes. And so I do need to spend some time on them. But I want to talk to you guys about under the sun. So you should notice that Solomon is discussing life under the sun. Something to note as well is that Ecclesiastes does have a major theme of labor and people tend to work during the day. And so as Solomon is discussing the scope of labor, he's talking about the things that happen under the sun, right? Under the day, during the day, during the workday, right? And there are discussions of things that happen under heaven, and those tend to be things that happen at night as well as in the day. And we'll talk about those when we get to them. But you should notice that Solomon is, in a sense, limiting his scope. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a very naturalistic book. It's a book that focuses on observations of the world as it appears and as it is experienced in this life. There's not a whole discussion of like the spiritual world and spiritual consequences. And one of the things that can cause people to have a bit of a jaunting reaction to Ecclesiastes is that it seems to be written often without a consideration of the afterlife, without a consideration of heaven or hell or God or spiritual realities. And there certainly is a number of discussion related to God, but Solomon discusses God as we interact with him in this life, in the boundaries of this life. Solomon is observing, discussing, and evaluating life under the sun. And so from Ecclesiastes 1 to 11, Solomon is essentially taking this life and weighing it by its own merits. He discusses that life is passing and worthless. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, after he's expanded this thesis in chapters 1 to 11, in chapter 12, he finally gets to, okay, how should you live your life? in application of the fact that life is a vapor. What is the good and right application after having considering the value of life under the sun? 
And essentially, the conclusion in chapter 12 is that after having demonstrated life under the sun, the conclusion is that one should determine to live instead for what lies above the sun. Solomon demonstrates that the pursuit of this own of this very life for itself is worthless, and so you should instead pursue what lies beyond it. But in chapters 1 to 11, it's this entire discussion of the fault, the faults that exist in life itself. And so we've established that, and just to recap, we've seen the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, referring to Solomon, and he says, vapor of vapors, says the preacher, vapor of vapors, all is vapor. And that's to say that life is brief and life is empty. What is given to a man with all his labor, which he labors under the sun? And we see there that Solomon is limiting his discussion, at least for chapters 1 to 11, to a very observational discussion of life as we live it within the boundaries of our own lifespan. So we continue in verse four and Solomon continues to discuss this idea. And he says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries to return to its place. Going to the south and returning to the north, the wind goes around and on its circuit, it returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, but the sea is not filled. To the place where the rivers flow, there they return. And so here we see Solomon supporting the first half of his claim, the fact that life is short. Because even if a person has a long life, it's still no comparison to the world that that person inhabits. You might live for 70 or 80 years, and that is nothing compared to the lifespan of the earth. That is nothing compared to the lifespan of the sun. Long before you arrived and long after you go, the sun is going to continue to rise and set. The wind is going to continue to blow and the rivers are going to continue to flow into the sea. Essentially, Solomon's saying, you're a blip on a screen. The time frame of the universe is nothing compared to your lifespan. And the, the sheer scale of the universe is nothing compared to the scale of your life. So that's the first thing is that life is significantly longer, or I should say existence is significantly longer and significantly larger than you are. You're a blip on a screen. But there's a second aspect that he's also starting to develop in these verses. Because like I said, when Solomon says that everything is a vapor, that's a two-pronged claim that everything is brief and that everything is empty. But you might be thinking, well, just because something is short-lived, that doesn't mean that it's worthless. And so even in these verses, Solomon is actually establishing that point because there's a reason that the brevity of life is directly related to the value of life. Because you see, he says, the sun rises and the sun sets, and then it hurries to return to its place. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it just keeps on rising and setting. The wind goes to the south, and then it goes to the north, and the wind just keeps going around on its path. The rivers flow into the sea, but the sea is never full, and rivers just continue to return to the beginning of their source so that they can flow into the sea again. Essentially, he's noticing no matter how much work the sun does, it never gets to the end of its work. No matter how much movement the wind goes through, the wind never stops moving. And no matter how many times water flows into the sea, that process of flowing to the sea, it never really stops. The sea is never filled. So you're seeing the reason that brevity is connected to worthlessness. 
the sea is never satisfied and the sun of the and the wind never get to the end of their motion the natural world despite existing on a much longer time frame and on a much larger scale than our own lives is never satisfied it never gets to the end it never experiences a final and ultimate good not within the bounds of this existence and so as a natural feature of the world we inhabit satisfaction in this world is impossible even for the world itself. And so Solomon is introducing that idea as well as defending his statement that life is brief. And in verse eight, he actually makes that explicit. He says, all things are wearisome and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied by seeing and the ear is not filled by hearing. The issue with your life is that you can never be satisfied. There's never a sunset that you see that's just so beautiful that you're like, you know what? You can gouge out my eyes. I don't need to see anything else. There's never a movie that you watch that after you've watched that movie, you just never need to watch that movie again, or you never need to watch another movie either. There's nothing that you hear that now you're done hearing. You know, you never finish a conversation and then think to yourself, you know what? I need, I never need to have a conversation again. You never hear a song and then think to yourself, you know what? I never need to listen to music again. No matter how much good you experience in this life, you never actually reach that, reach that state of ultimate satisfaction. You never get to a point where there's no more good to experience. And so that's the reason why brevity and worthlessness are linked. You can never finish enjoying good, but you are going to die. And so the fact that you can never finish enjoying good means that death will always cut your good short. You will always die before you have experienced all of the good which you would have liked to experience. There is no satisfaction and there is no permanence. And so that's that two-pronged claim. Your life is going to be short and you will not be satisfied with good, which means that the brevity of your life renders it worthless. But then there's also another angle that Solomon addresses in this opening section. He says in verse nine, what has been will be, and what has been done will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. There is a thing of which someone might say, look, this is new. But this had already existed long ago in the times before us. There is no memory of former things, and even for things which come afterward, there will be no memory among those who come in the future. And one of the other things that we might want to do is we might see that, oh, I can't experience good ultimately in my life. I might not be able to reach a state of ultimate satisfaction, but I can propagate myself into the future. I can create a legacy so that something that I make stands after me. I can accomplish a feat that changes life as it is. I can do something that puts my name in the history books so that even if I'm not here, I'm always remembered. But that doesn't work. As we said earlier, the world exists on a scope and a scale far larger than we do. You might think that you've changed the world, but no matter what you build, it will eventually come down. There is no building that will stand forever. Even if it stands for a long time, eventually it will come down. No matter what you invent, it will eventually be obsolete. No matter what in innovation you create that fundamentally changes how the people on the world live, eventually something else comes in to replace it. It's just not good enough. 
Or maybe it falls into disrepair, and even if it was doing good for a while, eventually its good is short-lived. Eventually it comes to an end. And no matter what you do, it will eventually be forgotten. And for us, we look back and we think about the people that we remember. We think about the people that have made a mark on our own modern history. But the reality is, eventually those people will be forgotten too. For every person you remember, there are billions that you don't. And every day, millions of people are finally forgotten by the last person who knew, your, who knew their name. Eventually, when you die, maybe it'll be one of your grandkids, maybe it'll be a friend that you met at some place at some time, maybe it'll be a niece or a nephew, or maybe it'll be a stranger if you do do something that manages to be written down. But there will eventually come a day where the last person who knew your name either forgets your name or dies. And eventually, everyone that we remember will be forgotten. Because that's just the way that things go. This, this world exists on a scope far beyond ours. And so, you're not going to experience ultimate satisfaction. Death is going to cut your satisfaction short. And you have no means by which to propagate your name throughout history. Because eventually, it will be forgotten. For most people, far quicker than others. And so, Solomon, after this section, he's going to continue going through specific examples of this principle. He's going to evaluate specific spheres of life, and he's going to demonstrate in this sphere of life, in that sphere of life, in that sphere of life, this principle holds true. That there is no ultimate good to be enjoyed, and that there's no way to ultimately propagate yourself forward. And so, at the end of the book, in chapter 12, he's going to discuss the proper way to respond to these realities, but we start with Solomon's claim about life under the sun. Solomon's thesis in this initial chapter is that life under the sun is short and ultimately unsatisfying, and that there is no way to permanently propagate a legacy. In other words, life is a vapor. Life is passing and empty. Welcome to reality. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shaking Scripture's Leaves. If you have any questions or if you want to discuss anything from this podcast, you can email me at johnhorning at gmail.com. And you can go to the Shaking Scripture's Leaves website at johnhorning.org, which not only has my other podcast episodes, but also has some blog posts on other issues. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.